Hello, everybody, and thanks for listening into Truth Be Told. I really do appreciate it of all the things you have to click on and all the things you have to spend your time doing. Uh, the fact that you chose to click on this and spend your time studying the Bible with me is just really, really cool, kind of mind-boggling to me, but I also really, really appreciate it and don't want to let that go unsaid. I haven't posted anything uh, new in a while. Well, I, actually, I guess that's not totally true. I have posted things. I typically post about every two weeks, um, but the past few weeks have been a little bit different in that I didn't have a specific topic that I sat down and studied and then um, recorded an episode and posted it. Rather, the past few weeks have been uh, messages that I've given at church services. I've had a lot of opportunity to speak uh, at church lately on topics that I wanted to talk about on the podcast anyways, so I figured kill two birds with one stone. And that was also really helpful because I've had a lot of schoolwork and uh, that's just taken up a lot of time. I'm in school right now for Christian counseling, so I'm finishing up that degree as quickly as I can. And it's going really well. I'm really enjoying it. I'm learning a lot, um, but it does take up a lot of time. And then third, I, I uh, have been doing interviews uh, by myself lately. So interviews have taken a lot more of my time. Typically, I had a team of people doing video and audio with me, which, man, I cannot thank those guys enough because they did an awesome job getting me started. And they're still available for consulting with me and everything. But it was just taking up too much of their time. So um, interviews are all on me now. So they take a lot more time to get scheduled and then actually you know, shoot the thing and then edit it and then post it. So that's been taking more of my time and I don't want to stop doing them. So for all those reasons, I've uh, posted a few more pre-recorded things rather than recording one specifically with an idea in mind and then studying that idea. But today we are back doing that and I'm really excited to be doing that. And we're going to discuss the concept of new ideas. Now, This topic in Christianity is really, really touchy because we've had the tenets of our faith for a long time and the central events surrounding what we believe happened, happened a long time ago. You know, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The apostles went out and preached the gospel to all people. Even things like the creation of the world or all the events of the Old Testament. These happened a long, long time ago. We've had hundreds and hundreds of years to study and interpret and settle ourselves into our way of thinking. So we often think, well, what else could there possibly be? So then sometimes, even when someone brings us an idea that they just think is a new idea, often we can get really prickly, really touchy, and we think, absolutely not, I'm just not even gonna listen to it, shove it away, full stop, we push the idea away, we don't wanna listen to it, we reject it internally, and sometimes we can actually even think less of the person that brought it to us, thinking, oh man, this is a person that is causing chaos or causing discord, And um, I don't think that judgment on the person is always correct. And I don't think that handling of new ideas is always correct. It can be, though. I think it can be a good idea if someone's coming at you with something that they claim to be a new idea, especially a new theological idea, um, to say, nope, full stop, don't want to listen to it, especially if you feel um, you can't maybe be objective about it. Maybe this person holds a lot of sway over your life and you'd like to be more objective, so you need to take some time pray about it, study a bit more on the topic, or maybe you just don't feel comfortable with your own level of discernment. Maybe you're newer in the faith and you just need some help, some wise counsel from somebody. I think that's okay. You don't want to just listen to every single person's opinion on every single thing. Um, It's okay to put a full stop on that and come back to this quote unquote new idea later, particularly when you feel 
better prepared to answer it or to listen to it objectively. And I think this makes good biblical sense. Uh, Much of the New Testament was written in response to new ideas like pre- or proto-Gnosticism, depending on your your frame of thought there, um, were often warned by the apostles to be wary or cautious of them. 2 Timothy talks about this quite a bit. Paul talking to Timothy um, in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 discusses a future time indicated by the phrase the last days. So this this could be the time that we're in right now. And it's important to know it's future time because a lot of bad things happening that Paul's talking about in this, this verse um, happened at his time too. But it's clear that they would ramp up in the future and this is almost uh, prophetic in nature. But it talks about a time when men would be incredibly corrupt. It says they'd be lovers of selves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, etc. And because of all of this, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, just the next chapter over, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So I think a verse like this is motivation for a lot of people because it's Paul exhorting Timothy to be on the lookout for essentially new ideas or fables that might turn people aside Because at some point in the future, in the last days, um, people are going to reject truth in favor of these fables. And I think most people would think, well, I'm more in the last days than Timothy was, so this is something I also need to be on the lookout for, and maybe even a little bit stronger than Timothy was if I'm getting closer and closer to that time. So if you're someone who has maybe presented a new idea or hypothesized about something and thought, yeah, I just had a question about this thing, studied into it, looked around for what other people thought, came to this conclusion and wondered about it. So I went to somebody and asked them, and you feel like you got shut down. A lot of times it's not because of you. It's not about the idea that you had. Maybe maybe what you had was something pieced together that might have brought a fuller understanding or meaning to something, and it wasn't wrong at all. But I think you can get shut down because people are very overly cautious um, based on verses like this. So it's not wrong to be cautious because this verse clearly tells us to be cautious and on the lookout. And it's not wrong to postulate new ideas or um, hypothesize about things or to have questions or concerns and to bring those up to people. But we're not really able to do that. And I think this is what I'm doing this episode for. Because if you feel that you're somebody who is always studying and learning and uh, questioning in good faith, you know, not trying to shift everybody's paradigm or draw people after yourself, but that you're getting rejected or shut down from people. Maybe now you can at least understand a little bit about why people are doing that to you and uh, maybe come up with a different approach. And also look inwardly at yourself and say, am I approaching this as if it's a new idea or that I am trying to get people to follow after me or my new idea? Or is this just something that I think is interesting and I'm actually just uh, wondering about or questioning about? Because those are those are different motivations. And then if you're somebody who maybe is trying to be cautious based on what scripture says. Maybe you can take a look at yourself as well and say, okay, um, am I just shutting things down prematurely in an overabundance of caution? Or am I actually doing this because uh, the merit of the idea warrants me shutting it down right now? So I think it's just good for self-reflection as we kind of go through 
um, this study today. And we'll look at a few examples, some examples of people handling new ideas uh, from the Old Testament as well as from the New Testament. And we'll also look at instruction from the Old and New Testament to kind of see maybe what we're missing on either side that can kind of balance us out a little bit. Now I'm really going to try and handle this in a balanced way. It is difficult because I know this is a sensitive topic to a lot of people um, on either side that you're on. If I appear uh, a little bit biased, I really hope I don't. I'm going to try my hardest not to. I come from a background that's um, a little less receptive to new ideas. and I, I don't mean, again, new gospels or complete shifts in your faith. Um, but just a little bit more cautious towards new ideas. So I might seem a little bit biased just because I think sometimes we can become a little bit hypercritical or overcautious, and, and I mean this for myself as well. Um, but sometimes we tend not to even be cautious. I mean, if you see a sign on the road that says caution, it's different than a sign that says stop. And more often than not, we, we don't practice caution. We just kind of throw up a stop sign. Now, if you feel uncomfortable and you aren't sure whether or not you might be thrown off course. And again, it's okay to stop. It's okay to get more wisdom into the discussion. Um, but I, I really do think shutting our ears to everything isn't wise. Um, I, I just think this is kind of a problem, and it's it's more the background that I'm coming from. And I think with this methodology, um, a lot of good can end up being thrown out, and our skills of discernment end up getting weaker over time. And I'm not really sure that it's it's always biblical when we do this. So if you're not on base with me at this point, or particularly after I said that I'll be a little bit more biased, I think I want to make that a little bit clearer, actually. Um, I will be probably more biased because of how I am or how I was brought up. I was brought up to be very cautious, and a lot of times I just didn't want to hear it. A lot of times my friends would bring me books and say, oh, you should read this book by this guy. And I thought, he doesn't go to our church. I don't, I don't want to read that. And uh, that was just kind of my, my frame of mind. Now, I've slowly but surely tried to shift that a little bit, and I hope I'm a little bit more balanced, but if I'm biased against people that kind of shut down ideas, it's only because I'm tending to be more biased against myself, um, not towards you in general. And I also think um, if you're not with me up to this point, you just think new ideas should be shut down, stay with me, because I, I think I'm going to make the case using biblical examples, and I think we're probably more in line ideologically than you think. It might just be a difference in terms on what we consider to be new ideas. Because again, I'm not talking about a new gospel or a complete shift in faith. So we've already looked at the New Testament precedent for having a distaste for, for new ideas. Um, but we're going to look at a few examples of new ideas and how people in the Bible responded to them. And then, like I said, go to the Old Testament precedent for new ideas. That will be specifically about prophecy. And then uh, lastly, we'll go back to 1 Timothy 4, where we were at the beginning, to kind of see what we might have missed that we could um, use to maybe balance ourselves. So this is the general outline. Um, we're going to go through a few new ideas first. And the first new idea is it's going to almost be laughable to you. So I hope you've stuck with me to this point because um, I think when I announce this new idea, it's, it's going to seem like, okay, I understand where he's going a little bit more. Um, but the first new idea is Jesus as Messiah. Now, to most of you, you're like, well, this isn't a new idea. This is an idea that I've had forever. This is an idea that is a basic fundamental of Christianity. But that hasn't always been the case. Now, I first discussed this back in an interview I did last year or um, 
man, maybe two years ago now with Thomas Fretwell on Miracles. So you can go check that out. Um, I, I really enjoyed that interview a lot. But the general idea is that there were certain miracles or signs that the Jewish religious leaders were supposed to be on the lookout for when seeing if an, if an individual might be the Davidic Messiah. And these miracles came from the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. So Jewish officials were on the lookout for these types of miracles. Um, and then they would do three things whenever there was a messianic claim. They would observe, they would interrogate, and they would give a verdict. And often we can miss this um, in the Gospels, even though it's very clearly written about. We can kind of miss it because we don't have that, that context of Jewish culture. Um, but in Luke 5, verses 12, uh, and I'll read through 17. So we're going to go through a lot of scripture today. I hope it doesn't um, bore you, but I think the more scripture you have, the better. But in, in Luke 5, verse 12, it says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report of him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So obviously this man did not listen. He might have gone to the priest, but he also told people, which Jesus told him not to do. And then the report, it says, went abroad, and great crowds gathered around him to hear him. Now in verse 16 it says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And then verse 17 we see... Um, kind of this this leadership, this delegation of Jewish leadership coming to Jesus to kind of start this process. It says, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So to follow the events here, the report goes out after Jesus heals a leper. Essentially, this is like a messianic claim being made. Hey, one of the, one of the signs we're looking for has already happened. Then the response from the Jewish leadership from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem came to observe Jesus. This is an official delegation. They're starting the process here to see, could this be the Davidic Messiah? And then in the same chapter, when Jesus heals a paralytic, they begin to interrogate him. They ask him things like, why do you claim you have the authority to forgive sins? And then it continues on with, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do your disciples eat and drink while John the Baptist fasted with his disciples? And uh, there's actually evidence that a similar delegation went to John the Baptist, which I think is kind of cool because if this is a new idea to you, you're thinking, man, you're kind of drawing a lot of conclusions based on a few words in scripture. But there's scriptural evidence as well as historical evidence about this. Now, I'm primarily going to stick to uh, scriptural evidence. You can find the historical evidence for yourself um, in the Talmud that this was kind of the process that the Jewish leadership went through whenever there was a, a messianic claim. Um, but in Matthew 3, we see this delegation going to John the Baptist. Matthew 3, 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able 
to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. So Pharisees and Sadducees come out to observe John the Baptist, and um, he calls him a brood of vipers, which is not the greatest reception. Now, okay, maybe you think, well, how do we know this was kind of the same thing? This just says Pharisees and Sadducees. That could have been anybody. It doesn't have to be a delegation. But Jesus in Luke 7 actually affirms that these same men that are here uh, witnessing Jesus' miracles and making a decision on him also went out to John the Baptist. So this is a parallel account in Luke 7. Uh, John the Baptist is in prison at this point, and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to uh, kind of affirm his Messiahship. And he says, When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? In that very hour, he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to, the many, and to many blind he gave sight. So basically, he's doing all of the signs that these, these, uh, this delegation would have been looking for at this very hour, it says. And Jesus answered them and said, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So Jesus not only fulfilled all of the miracles that the Davidic Messiah should, or that these leaders of the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin would have been looking for, but also went above and beyond and healed, the, uh, raised the dead and preached the gospel to the poor. So in verse 24, it says, When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And this is where we get the affirmation that these people that went out to see John are the same people that are seeing Jesus right now. He says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So this delegation went out to see John the Baptist and rejected him as, as Messiah, which is fine because John the Baptist was not Messiah and never claimed to be Messiah. But Christ is telling them right now, uh, this was God's will that John the Baptist would be here. He's fulfilling a different part of scripture that you also rejected and also didn't see. That was part of God's will. So this idea that this is a delegation sent to kind of inquire about Jesus um, is not only historically attested to, but also biblically attested to uh, from Jesus himself, who kind of identified these people with the ones that also went out to go uh, test John. It says that they rejected him as well. So this delegation is there and they have observed Jesus and they have interrogated him. And you'll see that all throughout the gospel. And now they need to offer a verdict. This is what they're here for. And I think if we look at their response to each of the miraculous signs that Jesus offers them, we'll get a better understanding of why they offer the verdict that they did. So in Luke 5, I'm just going to go through these pretty quickly. Um, in Luke 5, a leprous man and a lame man are healed. These are parts of the signs that we see back in the prophecy in Isaiah. But the Pharisees don't give much credence to the healings. Um, they see Jesus forgiving sins, and they condemn that because that didn't fit their idea of Messiah. In John 9, a blind man is healed, 
But because the man was born blind, in their mind he's sinful. So the healing can't be from God because uh, the, the curse of being blind was from God in their view. So they reject this miracle as well. In Matthew 9, it says a mute man is healed, and then the delegation offers their verdict. And um, we're going to read that in uh, Matthew 12, 22. Uh, it says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? So they're asking, right? I mean, the Pharisees are here, the doctors of the law are here, this delegation from Jerusalem, they're all here ready to offer a verdict, and the people are asking, What's your verdict? Is this the Messiah? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So they reject him as Messiah, essentially, is what's going on here. This delegation, this, this section is known as the official rejection of Jesus as Messiah. So this delegation believed in the old ideas of Messiah doing amazing, miraculous things, but they did not want to hear the new idea that this Jesus, who was from a less than respectable town of Nazareth, he was at home in uneducated Galilee, he were, was a break of, of the Sabbath in their view, he was a blasphemer for saying that he could forgive sins, he was spending time and showing love and mercy to sinners. They didn't believe that this man could be Messiah. This was a new idea, and so they shut that idea out. But you might be thinking, now wait a minute, this isn't really a new idea. This is some stuff that was prophesied about a long time ago, or even the stuff that might not have been prophesied about specifically is only new perspective on an idea that is an old idea. And you might say, well, this kind of makes it irrelevant because it's, it's not a new idea. But that's not true. Sometimes new can be relative to what you feel you know. So if they believed that they were firm in their understanding of what Messiah would be, and Jesus wasn't measuring up to that, it might have been their fault for not looking deeper into Scripture, but it's still a little bit more understandable why they would have rejected this since it seemed like a new idea. I'm not sure if that made sense or not. It might have been just been more convoluted, but this can happen now when people have what they think are new ideas, but really they're not new ideas. They're ideas that are a different perspective or ideas that actually um, maybe highlight an old idea that hasn't been emphasized or focused on uh, in the listener's mind. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's a new idea. It's new to you who might be receiving it or new to you who might have thought of it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's new or that it falls into the same category that Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy of new like fables or something that's going to lead people off. But these are ideas that can be shut down pretty quickly as we see this delegation doing with Jesus' messiahship. So this is one reason why rejecting new ideas can sometimes... Uh, be dangerous or rather not dangerous, but have, have negative effects. In this case, it was dangerous. Uh, Christ condemns their conclusion and says that they are dangerously close to committing the unpardonable sin. Um, but it, it's not, not because there's something new to add to Christianity, but because there might be something old to Christianity that we just haven't perfected or focused on or emphasized yet. All right, the second new idea that I'd like to look at, if you'll follow my pattern here, uh, it's going to sound ridiculous again, but uh, in, in context, I think this would have seemed like a new idea, and I think there's biblical proof for this. So the second new idea is salvation to the Gentiles. Now, sometimes I think that Jewish and Gentile relations can be a bit misunderstood or painted with a pretty broad brush. Um, 
I read a ton of articles in preparation for this episode um, from both Jewish and non-Jewish scholars alike, and they were always in the frame of, well, Jewish people have uh, historically been really, really racist against Gentiles. Um, They have a lot of anti-Gentile rules, and uh, they've just never had good sentiments towards them. And that might be true to an extent, but I think, again, this is painting with a bit of a broad brush, because the Jews didn't have no interactions with Gentiles, particularly uh, if they were believing Gentiles, God-fearers. And this goes all the way back into uh, the Old Testament with Ruth, who was a Moabite, but was able to come into the congregation of Israel and be accepted there. Um, But in the New Testament, you had had Gentiles that were believing Gentiles, called God-fearers. And yes, they had their own section in the synagogue where they would sit, but it wasn't that they weren't allowed in synagogue or they weren't allowed to uh, be there and worship. Um, God-fearers could even go and worship at the temple, but only, again, at a certain court, uh, not the inner court where the true Jewish people were permitted, but um, they were allowed at the temple. So I'm not saying there's no prejudice here um, or that there's anything wrong going on there, but uh, I think if we just kind of look at it like, they were just exact opposites and they never had any dealings with each other and they avoided each other. I think that might be a little bit too extreme. Now it's true they were not permitted to eat with Gentiles, um, but mostly that's because Gentiles didn't keep the same laws that the Jews kept uh, when it came to eating. So Gentiles would eat unclean meats, they would not follow ritual washings, they weren't uh, opposed to eating blood or eating things strangled, which is a lot of what you see written about in Acts 15 when they're trying to determine how to bring in Gentiles with Jewish Christians and have them fellowship together. Uh, Acts 15, a lot of people think, oh, okay, Acts 15 at the Jerusalem conference, this must be an exhaustive list of everything the Gentiles have to do to be considered Christians. But that's not true. This is a list uh, of rules for interacting with Jewish Christians so that they could fellowship together without contention. Um, And that's why you see a lot of these things listed. They're, They're dealing with food laws because... Um, Jewish Christians were practicing some of these things that Gentile Christians were not, and they needed to be able to fellowship together. Now, I've heard some people say that Jews and Gentiles were like cats and dogs, which I think is actually a good sentiment, but it's not good in the way that they mean it. Now, a lot of people have cats and dogs, and cats and dogs can interact, and they're just fine. But no one's also a stranger to the idea of like a dog chasing a cat or a cat pestering a dog. That's kind of a familiar thing in people's households. I think Jews and Gentiles are very similar in this way. They're not necessarily the best of friends. They have different sentiments depending uh, on the sect of Jew or a particular Gentile nation. Like Samaritans in the Jewish mind were were worst of the worst, absolutely horrible. And they would separate a lot more often than um, someone from from a different Gentile nation. Um, Or even this would depend on the individual person. But they were in close quarters. You know, Jews and Gentiles were living in the same cities and they were able to interact to an extent. But one thing that was generally agreed upon was that the Jewish people saw themselves as a chosen nation. They were elevated above the Gentiles and they were a chosen nation. I mean, that that part is absolutely true. Um, But they saw the Gentiles as lesser in a lot of ways because they weren't of chosen nations. Now, they could come to embrace Judaism but even then, they were slightly less, going back to that God-fears in their own section of the synagogue. 
But the Jews understood that salvation was coming to them. Messiah was coming to them. And they were looking forward to a time when they would be liberated or maybe even separated from the Gentiles. So they knew that they were a chosen people, and that was right. But they forgot why God chose them in the first place. They saw it as, well, I'm being chosen because I'm doing right or I'm doing the things God wants me to do. And these pagan nations, these Gentile nations, they're not doing those things. So they're not chosen. But they forgot that they were called to be an example to these other nations, not just to be elevated above them, but to be an example so that others might um, recognize the goodness of God's way and then follow after that. So in the Jewish mindset, there really wasn't much effort being made towards Gentile salvation because that wasn't really um, what the plan of God was in their minds. And this was true even of the apostles. And we see this uh, from Peter in Acts chapter 10. Even though he spent all this time with Jesus, even though in our minds looking back, we can see that Jesus talked about this a lot, um, that his message was to the whole world. In Acts 10, well after the resurrection, where Peter's told, along with the other apostles, to go out and preach to all the nations, um, Peter has to be kind of prodded along in order to even go speak to the Gentiles, or at least specifically Cornelius. And so Acts 10 Verse 34, Peter is at Cornelius' house and he's speaking to him and his family. And he says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So it seems like, okay, Peter's starting to get it. He's called to this Gentile person. He's called to preach the gospel to him. But then even later, uh, just a few verses down in verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So it never occurred to these people that salvation could go to the Gentiles too. This was a new idea. Even after Peter says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, they're still astonished when God continues to show no partiality by uh, opening up the doors to the Gentiles as well. And the crazy thing is, still there were Jews who rejected this idea. A lot of Paul's interactions in the New Testament deal with the idea from Jewish Christians that Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to receive salvation. Now, no, I did not say that Gentiles don't still have to transform their lives and live by God's commands, because they absolutely do. They just don't have to become Jewish. And even Jewish people have to become a new creation in order to follow Christ. So uh, everyone has to change their life. But this idea of salvation of the Gentiles seemed like such a new idea that it was so hard to swallow for many of the Jewish people in the first century, even those who spent their time with Christ. And we know that Peter really had a hard time with this. Even though he he says this about um, God shows no partiality, he witnesses the Holy Spirit falling on Cornelius. It's almost like God had to move that along because Peter wasn't baptizing him, so he kind of did things out of order a little bit. Um, and then even later, Paul says he had to withstand Peter to his face because Peter was showing partiality to Jewish people and not eating with the, the Gentile Christians. So this was a difficult concept. This is really, really tough for a Jewish person to wrap their mind around. And this new idea was, was really, really hard to accept and oftentimes was not accepted. But again, is this a new idea? And I think we'll see if we look at Isaiah 56, that it is not at all a new idea. It just was perceived as a new idea and so was rejected by a lot of people. So Isaiah 56, we'll see a really cool prophecy. 
And I think this prophecy is especially cool because not only does it refute the idea that Gentiles were never meant to receive salvation, because they absolutely were, all the way back in the Old Testament, even as far back as Genesis 12, where Abraham receives the covenant, it says that he's receiving this covenant to be blessed, to be a blessing for all nations, that all nations might be blessed through him. But I think it also refutes the idea that the Gentiles didn't have to keep any sort of law. They were not expected to transform their lives at all. They didn't have to follow um, any, any tenets of Christianity. They didn't have to do anything good. Now, I'm not saying that good works grants you salvation, but salvation should be shown uh, through your good works, as James talks about. So this prophecy, I think, speaks to all of those things. It's really cool. Isaiah 56, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. Again, speaking to actions, changing your life, following God's way. And the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house, and within my walls a place and a name, better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In verse 6 it says, Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Verse 8, finishing up this idea. It says, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So this was God's plan all along, but it's so cool that it talks about that these people are still expected to serve him and to cleave to the Lord, not to Jewish people. They're not becoming Jewish, but they do have to cleave to God. They have to come uh, join themselves with him. And I think this is a concept that often gets missed. But yeah, this is not a new idea. Gentile salvation was something that God had planned uh, way from the beginning. And not even Gentile salvation, world salvation. Because though salvation went to the Jews, meaning Jesus Christ went to the Jews and preached the gospel to them, they rejected it initially. And uh, Paul talks about that a lot in Romans. But the point here is, this was not a new concept. It was just a new concept to the people who had lost the old concept. And I think it's easy to look with hindsight at these situations and say, well, they should have just looked harder. They should have studied more. But they're products of their their time, just like we all are. So is it possible that we could be making some of the same mistakes when people present new ideas? Um, we reject them thinking, no, we don't want anything that shakes our faith. But in reality, it might be an old idea that we've just kind of lost either personally or as groups. All right, I'd like to go through one more example um, of people rejecting an idea because they believed it was a new idea. And this is uh, in the situation with Paul at the Areopagus in Athens. And he goes and meets with some of the, the wise people of that city, some of the thinkers of that city, the philosophers and the Stoics, and uh, preaches the gospel to them. But I want you to notice what they say to him here. 
Now this account can be found in Acts chapter 17, so that's where we're going to start reading. Um, verse 16 essentially is just Paul coming into the city, and he sees that uh, there's a lot of idols everywhere, and so he begins to reason in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, um, and then even in the marketplace to whoever would listen. So in 18, he meets these, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and what they say to him is really, really interesting. They say, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. This word for babbler is really, really interesting. Um, it's actually a hapax legomena, which I talked about in a previous episode. Uh, if you want to go back and look at that, basically that's just a word that only appears once uh, in scripture. And that is just kind of a bit of trivia. It's not really relevant. But this word babbler uh, can mean like a, like a bird that is um, pecking or like kind of picking at seeds. And the idea kind of translated here is that Paul is taking like a little bit from here and a little bit from there. There's things that they recognize about what he's talking about, but it seems like he's compiled them into something new. So like a bird would like pick at this tree and go to that flower and grab this seed. That seems to be what Paul is doing or how they perceive what Paul is doing. So these weren't necessarily all brand new ideas, um, except for obviously the resurrection and the messiahship of Jesus Christ, but they were ideas they had never heard brought together in this way before, um, particularly with the addition of Jesus as resurrected God. So, uh, But they did have concepts for resurrected gods. What's interesting is um, Dionysius, who is one of the people that actually seemed to be converted or um, kind of give Paul a little bit more credence than the rest of the people. His namesake is after a story of a resurrected God or a God who experiences a resurrection. So maybe, um, I mean, there's no telling, but perhaps his namesake was for a reason or that was a God that their family particularly worshiped. And so this idea of resurrection wasn't new to him. And so that maybe put him over the edge to listening a little more closely to Paul. Who knows? Now, there are two really cool ways that we can know that these philosophers, um, some of them saw Paul's ideas as not brand new, but brought together into a new kind of form. Uh, one is biblical and one is, is historical. So the biblical is because it delineates two different groups. It says, some said, what does this babbler want to say? With that word babbler there, meaning the, the picker of seeds, uh, like a bird picks seeds. And then others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So some believe that he is preaching something brand new that they've never heard before. And some believe that he's a babbler or he's, he's picking from here and choosing from there and bringing all into one, one new thing, but all the individual things are not brand new things. So that's one way we can know that this word babbler means something different than just um, he's bringing something totally new. But another really, really cool way that I had never heard about prior to um, about a month ago that we can know that some of these people had heard some of these things that Paul was saying before, even if they hadn't heard it all brought together, is in the story that Paul tells about the altar to the unknown God. So bear with me for a second. I, I find this just completely fascinating, but I can see how it might seem a little bit off topic. Basically, I'm trying to make the point that what Paul was talking about was not completely foreign to the people at Athens. They had heard bits and pieces about it. And still, even though they saw the bits and pieces of truth, they rejected it anyways, which is something we can do too. 
if we're not careful. So it doesn't have to be just something totally foreign where we've never heard of it before and we want to reject that. Even someone coming it to us with um, pieces of truth in what they say, we also might not want to listen closely and we might reject those ideas as well. And once again, this is not new ideas like a new gospel or something that totally uproots all of Christianity or shakes somebody's faith away from following God. That is not the kind of new idea I'm talking about. Um, obviously, Paul's idea here is not that kind of idea. It is uh, one that shook their lives for sure, but one that actually promoted Christianity. Okay, so this altar to the unknown God. Paul is talking to these people at Athens, and when they, they asked to hear more from him, it says in verse 22 of, of chapter 17, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So for most Christians, this is the first time that this concept ever appears, the altar to the unknown God. But actually, it is written about in another historical account um, dealing with a Cretan named Epimenides. Now, Epimenides was a Cretan philosopher and poet uh, from prior to Paul's time, and he wrote prior to Paul's time. And in history, it says that he was actually responsible for these altars to the unknown God. Essentially, Athens was under what they considered a plague, and they didn't know what to do. They had sacrificed to all the gods that they knew. They prided themselves on having altars to all the gods that came in. They were very inclusive of other kinds of worship, and they believed they were trying to appease as many gods as possible. So who else could be left out? So they didn't know what to do. This plague wasn't going away. But they heard about this man, Epimenides, on the island of Crete. So they called for him. They said, please, Epimenides, come and help us. We have this plague. We don't know what to do. We're sacrificing to all of these gods. So Epimenides comes over to Athens, and he says, well, the answer seems pretty clear. You're worshiping all of these gods that you do know. But the answer must be that the god who is allowing this plague or not taking it away must be above them and must be a God that you don't know. So we need to offer him a sacrifice. And so I, I just find this really interesting. It's almost like um, true God worship was around prior to uh, Christianity and even outside of Judaism. It was just that it got kind of confounded with um, paganism and polytheism, which by the way is the concept of the book that I'm getting the story from. It's called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Um, he does a good job. There's a lot of uh, sourced material here. This isn't something he made up or something that um, I'm just drawing from that I think sounds cool. It's actually historically verifiable. So this guy Epimenides comes and he says, we need to uh, sacrifice to the unknown God that we're not worshiping. And so they said, well, we don't know how to do that. And uh, this quote is really, really interesting. Um, it says, invoke a God whose name is unknown. Is that possible? And then Epimenides says to this, um, he says, any God greater or great enough and good enough to do something about the plague is probably also great enough and good enough to smile upon us in, in our ignorance if we acknowledge our ignorance and call upon him. So these men of Athens are convinced at this point and they say, okay, tell us what to do. So Epimenides has all the shepherds of the town uh, gather all their sheep, not feed them for one night, and then the next morning bring them to this hill. And he says, any sheep, he says, says a prayer to this unknown God, to him unknown, to the Athenians unknown, says a prayer to them and says, 
to the unknown God, whichever sheep fits you uh, or, or is a pleasing sacrifice to you, have them not eat, but lie down instead. So you have a whole bunch of flocks of hungry sheep. They're on this grassy hill. And he says, whichever sheep don't eat, those ones will sacrifice to you on an altar to you, even though they don't know his name. And all the Athenians are saying, okay, well, this is how we know he's crazy because uh, clearly the sheep are hungry. They're going to eat. But all these sheep actually laid down, not every single one, but some sheep laid down and some grazed. And the choicest sheep, it says uh, in this historical account, were the ones that laid down. So all of those sheep, they sacrificed on altars to an unknown God. And those altars stuck around for years and years and years until Paul got there. So this is a story from history that is verifiable, that is prior to Paul, and is a reason why these these altars even got here in the first place. And it even seems evident that Paul might have known about this story because later in his writings, he actually quotes Epimenides um, when he talks about... um, when it says all Cretans are liars, See, that's Epimenides, it's a poem from him. So it seems like Paul was familiar with the man Epimenides and might have been familiar with these altars that he set up uh, in Athens when they were undergoing a plague. So this is not new information. This, this is not new to Paul, and this is information that he knows is not new to them. So he's presenting it in a way that is very palatable to them, saying, at one point, you guys had this altar built to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about that God. And so he presents it that way. And I think that's really interesting. Now, in the end, back to our main point, um, they do reject this. They reject this as a new idea, even though it has truth that they once knew at some point. And I think this is exactly what we can do um, with ideas as well. We reject something old because it's maybe presented in a way that we've not quite heard before. All right. I hope you found that interesting. I, I find that story to be fascinating because I've, I've never heard it before um, up until about a month ago, like I said. And I've heard the story of the altar of the unknown God several times from Acts 17, but just not that part of it uh, to kind of show that this wasn't really new to either party. So now I want to shift focus to people who received new ideas, but then responded appropriately, people that we would like to be like. And these are people that um, will often quote or will often look to as good examples, but maybe not necessarily in this way. So the first group is the Bereans and famous name also found in Acts 17, just prior to this event in Athens. And I'm just going to read the account because I think it speaks for itself. Um, Acts 17 and verse 10, it says, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scripture daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So it doesn't say they were more predisposed to believe what Paul said, or they were just shaky in their faith. They were more fair-minded. They were more ready to listen to the idea, not to receive it and accept it immediately, but to then search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So this is a good example of someone listening fully to a new idea and then searching the scripture to find out whether it it holds up, not just rejecting it or not just accepting it blindly. So these people are really, really good examples to us uh, when someone has an idea that we might perceive as new. They were looking at the scripture to see, okay, is this idea something that we perceive as new, but is actually old from the from the scriptures? 
Or is this a new idea that uh, needs rejected because it doesn't fall in line with what scripture actually says or bears out? Now, another example of someone who heard a new idea and uh, was fair-minded towards it was King Josiah. And this can be found in 2 Kings 22. Now, King Josiah lived in a time uh, where things were not going well in the nation. Um, People were corrupt. People had uh, turned aside from God. People had completely forgotten God. I mean, totally forgotten him, not even just like, oh, we reject him, but we know him. But, you know, this is not the times of the judges. This is a time when they had completely rejected God and even forgotten him from their minds. Now, it says in verse 3 of chapter 22, Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver into the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Now, Josiah is trying to set things right. He's trying to go back to following God, but he doesn't exactly know how. So the first thing he's doing is uh, repairing the temple and uh, doing that by having people uh, bring money to the temple. And so he's counting this money up to see what they have to pay the workers who are rebuilding it. Then in verse 8, it says, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So they had lost the law. They had lost their scripture. But Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So this is essentially a new idea, right? This is not uh, something brand new in the sense that this has never been heard before, but to the culture of the time where they had completely forgotten God, this book was new. I mean, it's almost like something being given new life. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. So he didn't just say, "Uh, I don't know, like we're going to kind of carve our own path towards following God. Um, we're starting one step at a time, you know, we're going to clean up the temple. We'll, we'll see where we go from there. He read or he, he heard the book of the law and he was convicted by it. So this being a new idea, he's realizing this is not a new idea. This is an old idea that we've rejected and forgotten. And then he turned his life. Now, this is something um, that Israel looks to as a wonderful thing that happened, a turning back to God, a repentance of a nation. And we look at this as a good example of how we should be. um, If we turn from God, we should always be ready to go back to him in humility, you know, tearing your clothes and and, uh, going back to God whenever you feel or see that you've gone away from him. So this is a great example of someone seeing an idea that almost seems to be new to him, almost is kind of foreign, hasn't had this since he's grown up. But when he hears it, and he tests it to be true, or he sees that it's true, he changes his life because of that. Imagine if Josiah, instead of reading it or listening to this book being read to him, had just said, okay, put it back on the shelf, we'll get to it later, we have a lot of work to do on building the temple. He didn't do that, and this is an example that we should follow. So then what do we do? Because the New Testament's pretty clear, we don't want to be led astray, we don't want new gospels coming in and um, perverting the gospel that we've been given. Um, we don't want to be led away by fables. We want to be cautious, but 
we also don't want to be so restrictive that we never hear anything um, or are never growing, never learning, never coming to more fullness of understanding or rejecting people that just have legitimate questions in a good spirit. Um, we don't want to be that either. I think we can see that from scripture. I hope I've proven my point in that. Um, so what do we do? How do we balance these things? How do we reconcile these things? And how do we live practically when either extreme clearly doesn't work? Now, I want to go back to 2 Timothy in just a second, but I think also a good word of advice is found in 1 John 4. Uh, 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So John here is following a pattern that Old Testament readers will be very, very familiar with, um, and that is dealing with false prophets. Essentially, uh, the rule of thumb was if, not, not the rule of thumb, the absolute rule, sorry, uh, for dealing with prophets and seeing if somebody was a true prophet or a false prophet was that a false prophet, you still hear them. You know, he says, test the spirits, whether they are of God, but know that there are false prophets and don't just readily accept or believe every spirit or every prophet, but test them. And how you test them is two things. One, if it leads you away from what God has already said, then that is a false prophet. And two, if what they say doesn't come to pass or isn't true. So if you test a prophet or you test somebody who's who's offering you a quote-unquote new idea, the two things you have to look at are, does this contradict what God has already said that is true? And two, does this have any merit of truth in it? So for a prophecy that's predicting the future, you would have to wait. You'd have to wait and see, does this come to pass? But the first thing was, does this lead you away from what has already been verified from God's word? Because God's not going to contradict himself. God's not going to lie. God is not going to uh, switch his mind on, on certain things that kind of make it confusing. When he decrees something, when he offers truth, um, that's it. There's nothing that's going to contradict that. So if someone is contradicting that, you have a false prophet, you have a false teacher, uh, you have someone with a new idea that should be stopped, rejected. These are the kinds of fables that Timothy was talking about, that or Paul was talking about to Timothy, that need to be rejected. But let's close by looking back at 2 Timothy, with Paul talking to Timothy about what to do um, based upon the time that perilous times are coming and that people would reject truth. Let's go back to that verse. Because while I think this verse is leading us to be appropriately cautious, which is a good thing, I think there's something missing, um, or, or we don't really take the full verse in context, and so we miss something that could maybe balance our approach a little bit. So I'm just going to read the whole thing, uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. It says, I charge you therefore, remember therefore is because of what he said already in chapter 3 about perilous times coming and men becoming perverse and lovers of money and self. So because of this, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, 
Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So two parts here that I think we kind of almost forget about or almost miss a little bit in trying to be cautious about this time that's coming. One is that we're to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. So we need to be patient with people. You know, we need to hear them out, but then also convince, rebuke, and exhort when there are things that are absolutely wrong or are ex- absolutely contentious or um, might lead people away. We don't just reject them. We don't reject the person. We don't shut down the person necessarily, but we hear them. And if it's correct, if it's true, then we explain that truth. If it's not true and it's not correct or could lead people away, then we convince, rebuke, exhort with long suffering and teaching. And the last part um, in verse five, but you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of, of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. So don't shut yourself up. Don't cloister yourself away because other people might have new ideas out there. You still go out and you preach truth to people. You fulfill your ministry. You do the work of an evangelist. So I think this can be another response we can have. It says, okay, we have truth. Let's just kind of, um, I don't want to say buried under a bushel, but kind of keep to ourselves because we don't want to be led away by anybody else. I think what we have to remember is that all truth is God's truth. And uh, we need to be looking for more points to connect with people on in truth, not that we take their falsehood and connect with them on that, but we see, okay, what truth do they have that we can work with? Um, Whether this is someone that's been in your congregation for a long time or someone brand new or someone new to Christianity entirely, I think this is kind of more the approach we need to take where we see where they're at, we see what truth they have, and we exhort them in those things while convincing them of those things and rebuking them in the things that are false or might lead them away later. So to me, the Old Testament and the New Testament seem to agree on this point. Uh, If someone comes to you with something you perceive as a new idea, you need to listen to it. It doesn't mean that you need to follow it, and it doesn't mean you need to adhere to it, but you have to give it a fair shake. And I think if you don't, you end up alienating the person, and you might be rejecting something that's actually true that you just perceive as a new idea. Um, but if you aren't the best at discerning or you don't feel strong enough to refute someone and it feels as if they're attacking you with this new idea, it's not wrong to shut it down, um, especially for the time being until you can study more, seek help. Um, there are new ideas that are false gospels. There are new ideas that are meant to attack your faith. There are new ideas that are sent by Satan to try and deceive you. So these are things that we need to be wary of. We need to be cautious of. But if we shut our ears to everyone's perspective, um, we might end up doing ourselves a disservice. We might be, or we might be pushing someone away when they're looking for conversation to see if their idea holds any ground or not. Um, and when we do that, I think they can kind of become entrenched. And so rather than iron sharpening iron, it's just them becoming entrenched in their idea. Now, if they're already entrenched in their idea, then there's no harm in trying to discuss it with them, reasoning with them, um, exhorting them, convincing them. That can't, can't hurt anything as long as it can't hurt you. And the way that it can't hurt you is if you are strong in your Bible so that new ideas don't scare you. Um, it'll end up seeming like we're protesting too much, which will only lend credence to actually wrong ideas or actually new ideas. And that's not what we want either. 
So to wrap up, I would just say, be careful. Um, if you are someone who is trying to study and learn all the time, that's great. Um, but don't be led away. Make sure you're not having itching ears, just trying to find something new because, um, the gospel that you've had from, from Christ's time forward, and even that's been proclaimed from the beginning of time, just because it's older does not make it less or does not make it weaker. It's actually stronger and more beautiful. And there's a fullness there that I think we can grow in, uh, all the way until Jesus Christ's second coming. So, um, it's not that you need new ideas to freshen things up. So just be careful. Test yourself. Make sure you're not doing something to just upturn the apple cart or shake someone's boat, but you know, are actually trying to discern truth and, and gain that fullness from the gospel that um, I think we'll be able to learn from all throughout human history. And if you're someone that feels like uh, maybe you shut down ideas or maybe you've done this in the past... Um, maybe make sure in the future that it is actually a, a new gospel or, or someone um, proclaiming new ideas that are going to lead people astray before you shut it down. So so listen fully and then shut it down or listen fully and then accept what you can and reject what you can't and try and reason with that person, convince them, exhort them and rebuke when necessary. So I think I'm hoping that this leads to a little bit more balance when it comes to new ideas, because it not always are new ideas actually new ideas. Sometimes they are old ideas that we just haven't really given enough attention to or have forgotten over time. So I think everybody has something to learn from the Bible, and none of us have connected all the pieces yet. So just it's okay to have perspective, and it's okay to listen to other people's perspective. Um, we just have to know what is absolutely true and is of God, and what is absolutely not true, and is not. And if we do that, um, whether we're the person hearing a new idea or the one uh, kind of composing a new idea, I think we'll have a lot better balance in um, how we present them and also how we receive them. So I hope this has been beneficial. Um, hope it gives a little bit of balance to somebody. I'm not telling people to go and seek out new ideas. I hope nobody got that message. This is a pretty delicate topic, and I, I really hope I did it justice, uh, at least to some extent. Um, but I also pray for a little bit of grace from those listening. And um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out because it's possible I didn't present something as well as I could have. But um, I hope that something I've said today is worth taking away. And I'll just pray on it and um, hope that you you've benefited from this message. Thank you guys very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. It's been about an hour now, and I, I know that is a lot of time to devote to a study, um, especially one you're not doing yourself. So if you followed me up until this point, I appreciate it, and it just it, it means the world. So if you wouldn't mind sharing this around with your friends or maybe another episode that you found beneficial, um, if each person just shared it with one person and they listened, that would effectively double the people listening. And even that is just huge. And double listeners actually also means like quadruple um, visibility because of how the algorithms all work and everything. So yeah, I just appreciate your time and your support. It really does mean the world to me. Hope you've enjoyed this. Hope it's a benefit to you. Until next time, keep on reading your Bibles, keep on thinking critically about them, and keep on applying the truths that we learn here to your lives. Thanks, everyone.